Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1. It would be helpful if you turn in a print Bible, although it may also be on the screen, because there's something I'd like you to see in a few moments about the way the pages are laid out between Genesis and Exodus. So good to be with you this day. We welcome you. We finished the book of Daniel. We begin an expositional sermon series through the book of the Bible that is Exodus, Lord willing. Brother pastor in town here, Josh Hammond, a friend, and I studied Exodus at a Simeon Trust workshop in February, and we found it profitable. We decided to try to pass that along to you. Also hoping to have a sort of team approach to, to learning, preaching, and studying the Bible. Uh, we believe that preaching must be taught as well as caught. We don't think that, that preaching is something that is strictly speaking all about how you feel on any given Sunday. I guess as preachers, we all bring a little bit of our background to the craft. I was... Uh, an athlete at one time, not so much anymore, but I remember uh, you'd, you would work and work and work and work and work to get ready for game day, uh, and you'd have a plan, and you'd go to game day, but then you were never exactly quite sure what would happen on game day. You just weren't exactly sure what would happen, but you were prepared. Uh, at least that was the goal, uh, and I, that's kind of how I approach preaching. I, I don't know that uh, in any way, shape, or form that's something that I would advocate is should be emulated. It's just my background, and one of the things that I've found to be helpful is just to get excited about the Lord's Day, to get excited about opening God's Word together, and to have a sense of, of expectation that God will do something through the Word being preached that He wouldn't do if we weren't gathered together faithfully for that purpose. And so as we go into Exodus and we engage in this together and other pulpits perhaps engaging the very same thing in this season, I'm excited, and I hope that that is... Uh, seen by you, heard by you, and I hope that you're excited as well, because just getting here is quite an endeavor. There are so many obstacles to coming to church on the Lord's Day, so many other things that compete for our time, that vie for our focus, and here we are to lean into God's Word. And so we hope the Spirit will move through these sermon texts preached by our team here. Um, we hope that uh, you'll remember, as the New Testament says, that all Scripture is profitable, it's useful including these 40 chapters in Exodus. Perhaps you might take the time to read through all 40 chapters of Exodus in the next week or two to kind of get the lay of the land, noticing how the themes shift throughout the book from a large period of years, hundreds of years, to four score years, and then down into just a year. And consider the, the geographical shifts from being enslaved in Exodus on the route to and then in Sinai, and consider some of those biblical and theological ways of looking at the text, if you'd like to go deeper with it, I uh, would recommend a study Bible. And if you want to go deeper still, there are resources that I could recommend to you if you just ask me. I would be glad to share those things with you. There's some wonderful resources with us. Uh, when I did the training workshop for this, we shared outlines, and, and I'm probably borrowing from a few of my colleagues indiscriminately, but one in particular I want to give credit to was a pastor out of Indianapolis named Nathan Lugbull, who, whose phrasing and gospel connection I just thought was great with regard to unstoppable blessings. And today, I share that as a title, Unstoppable Blessings, from Exodus 1. 
God's blessings are often threatened, but never thwarted. Often threatened, but never thwarted. You need this reminder today because in the flesh, you will see threats to God's blessing. The Spirit draws you closer to seeing even the threats as useful for godly purpose. The Spirit helps you to step back and see the larger picture of God's unthwartable blessing toward His people, which, according to the promise given to Abraham, is for those who will believe. It's for those who will have faith credited to them as righteousness. God's promises to bless whom He will bless, and His promise is to bless whom He will bless. And you are the children of promise through the faith shared with Abraham. Moses is a figure we have to think about for sure here as the divinely inspired author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Exodus 2 through Deuteronomy tells the story, the life story of Moses, to be sure. But today's text, Exodus 1, looks back at the events of Genesis and gives us details up to the year of Moses' birth. I'll take his birth to be 80 years prior to 1446 B.C., Since we will date the exodus of God's people from Egypt to be 1446 B.C., we will base that on 430 years that they were to live in Goshen, Egypt, and counting backward then from Solomon's temple, 480 years to the exodus. We take texts from the Old Testament to try to interpret an approximate year. I'm not sure that it's 1446 B.C., but I don't want to labor any more on dates. I'll just say that's what we think that it is here, and we'll go forward with that. If you have a better idea, if you think it was later or earlier, we're glad to have that conversation in the hallway. You might be right. Time in the Old Testament is reckoned by the Exodus, whatever date you date it at. It is the seminal event in the Jewish calendar, and it is connected intimately with the Christian calendar with ideals such as the Passover lamb and the action of Christ as the final sacrifice for our sins, having paid it all. We do invite you early and often in our sermon today to come to the Christ who's paid it all for you, and we plead with you to receive him, because that's the only hope that you have of these blessings to be appropriated to you. So, though, we take Moses to have been born near 1526 B.C., since the Exodus occurred near 1446 B.C. We do not name the Pharaoh because Scripture doesn't name this Pharaoh. We will see this is fitting for him. A study Bible will point out the periods of the rule in Egypt ranging from the second millennium B.C. near the time of Abraham's lifespan to Alexander the Great's conquest in 332 B.C. But Scripture doesn't list the name of the dynasty here, and so we won't try to say so either. We will say this, in all likelihood, the zenith of Egyptian rule was long about the time of the Exodus, making it all the more sweet that they were able to be delivered because of God's assured promises. We'll see that Egyptian power was not able to stop God's people from achieving the promise of growth numerically. as They started with 70 people, and they wind up, we think, at the Exodus with about 2 million. And we'll see also that Pharaoh's power was insufficient to keep them from moving toward the promise of the land that they would one day have, the exodus from Egypt crossing the Red Sea being a part of that, to be sure. Abraham needs a quick mention here as we're trying to lay the foundation and the groundwork for the book of Exodus. Uh, Abraham, God carried the creation mandate language to be fruitful and multiply through Abraham in 
Genesis 15, or he gave it to him. An old and unlikely birth of a child to Abraham with Sarah would string together a most unlikely lineage to tremendous growth. This was all of God. The blessing promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in Exodus 1. So the promises given to Abraham are thought of as you start Exodus 1. So when I read this, you're going to see it, that the promises that were given to Abraham through Jacob's children, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are in full view. And as they move from 70 people to what we think is 2 million people, we see the connection of God having already been faithful to them in the history that they have to this point. Something like 430 years. Last thing, when we read, and I know it's a lot of disclaimers, but when we read, listen for the prevalence of the word multiplied. Multiplied, 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 multiplied. That is definitely a theme by which we define the blessing of God toward his people. And listen for two Semitic names. They're Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. Shifra and Puah. And they need honorable mention here because Shifra and Puah are forever named and in our memory because of the listing of their names in Exodus 1. It's notable that you will not hear homage given to the name of mighty King Pharaoh, but you'll hear these two lowly women who for the longest time were infertile, having their names forever recorded in the annals of biblical history. So it's a wonderful text. I think that uh, Christians agree that God blesses his people, but I think there's a sense in which often we disagree that God is blessing his people by the very threatening situations that they face. We tend to think that God is blessing us when we have a gravy train, but when we face friction and times of pain and suffering, that somehow God's not in it. And what I think Exodus 1 does for us today is put that myth to rest early and often. It's true that sometimes we die for our faith or we are persecuted for our faith or we're marginalized for our faith. And some people will lead other people out of patterns of death. But none of God's people lose God's promised blessing. God blesses his people despite the threats against his people. And God blesses his people through the most difficult of times. Nothing separates us from the love of God and nothing separates from the blessing of God. It's just that the blessing isn't defined as wealth and health and prosperity. That's an aberration. And God blesses his people through threats across time, through threats in our workforce, and through threats at home. And that's how we'll look at it today as we look at the first seven verses, threats across time, 8 through 14, threats in our work, and then 15 through 22, threats in our very homes. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 1, 1 to 22, and notice how it is literally next door to Genesis 50, which is a carrying forward of the themes of the same divinely inspired author. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. 
They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to, midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto those who hear. First, let's see that threats across time do not separate us from the blessing of God. The Hebrew title for this book is Names. These are the names. That's the Hebrew way. A lot of times the first words of the book is the title of the book. The theme of Exodus is the Greek title for the book. Hence the theme Exodus from Egypt throughout the book. If you look down at your printed Bible, you'll notice Genesis 50 lays right next door to Exodus 1. And it would be worthwhile for us to notice the last verses of Genesis 50. Genesis 50, 15 to 26. I'll just read them quickly. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Just a quick pause. They're still lying. They're worried about Joseph punishing them for having sold him into slavery many moons ago. And now that Jacob is dead, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph is being looked to as an administrator in Egypt. Second command, having helped them through the famine, he's being looked to as possibly someone that would take vengeance on them. And they clearly didn't know his heart. So they said, say to Joseph, verse 17, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You can only imagine how heartbreaking it was after all these years for them to not see that he wasn't going to punish them. They were scared, though. Verse 18, his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That, that is a great phrase for our sermon today. You meant it for evil, God used it for good. The great, great thematic verse for the things that we're talking about today. And it goes on to say, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them, his brothers, and spoke kindly to them, his brothers. It's helpful to comfort brothers and to speak kindly to brothers when they're kind of topsy-turvy, isn't it? It really is. We ought to do that to one another when we're a little topsy-turvy. Comfort, speak kindly. A gentle answer turns away wrath, I've read. Now it talks of the death of Joseph, the son of Jacob. All these are sons of Jacob. Joseph, perhaps the most prominent in Genesis, even though Judah will get the nod much later. But here it says, Joseph, verse 22, remained in Egypt and his, father, and his father's house. So they stayed there. That's how they got there for 430 years. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of the maker of the son of Manasseh were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. 
But God will visit you and bring you up out of the land into the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, dad and grandpa and great-grandpa, clinging to these promises. This is what he's thinking of as he's dying. These are the promises assured. So I'm going to die, but God's God's still going to bless us. We're going to get brought out of this land. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you, make sure, carry me up my bones from here when you go. When the exodus happens, take me out of this place. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. What a magnificent passage. I mean, it's just a stunning way to end this 50-chapter first book of the Bible, isn't it? So glad Moses was so well trained in writing as a wonderful writer, and God moved through him to give us this wonderful book. You may remember Genesis. We spent two and a half years in it. We had a celebratory cake when we finished because everybody was so glad we were done uh, in, the, in the foyer we did. But right after Genesis, Genesis comes Exodus, and we come back to this place, and though it was centuries later, the promises were still in view for God's faithful. Joseph had died, but he died pointing to the promise and pointing to this principle that even when actions are taken that are meant for evil, God will accomplish good. Its parallel is found in the New Testament with Romans 8.28, that all things work to the good for those who trust in the Lord. Even though not all things are done in good faith or even for good, all things work together for good for those who trust in the Lord. And that's not just a, a trite promise, it's a true promise. We must or should at least remember the things that God has done so that we have confidence in the things that God promises to do. Each time we take the Lord's Supper, we do this to remember Him. There is a remembrance factor in the supper that we take in the blood of the new covenant. The sureness of the hope we have is rekindled like a campfire that has only embers remaining after a dark night. With a Sunday morning, we are filled with remembrance. It's like rekindling the fire and throwing another log on it. But we do more than remember here, for sure. It's a constructive project in the household of God. But we never do less than remember. For remembering is part of how we get to where we are going. There's an old saying that says, the days are long, but the years are short. Perhaps you've heard it. Days are long and the years are short. Now Moses himself was 40 years old before he asserted himself. Then he was 40 years working for his father-in-law, getting his family together before he found himself. And he spent his last 40 years as God's old instrument to lead his people into promised fulfillment as they made their exodus from Egypt. Centuries after Abraham heard it, Moses saw it. But no land for Moses, just numbers. Part of the promise fulfilled. Centuries after Daniel heard it, John the Baptist saw it. But no end to the wars and the rumors of wars yet. Only a turning point toward sure victory over Patrick labored for it, but England's Magna Carta came over years later. Medieval theologians longed for what the Reformation saw centuries later. The English Reformation bled, but Western civilization later saw what the Puritans, many of them, longed for in society. And whether we are in a prolonged century of longing or a short season of fruit, God's blessing will not be thwarted by magnifying the curse as the seed of the serpent always seeks to do. If you stop to think about it, you may have caught this. In Genesis 3, after man rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, 
God promised that man will have his work frustrated and that women will have their families frustrated. If you read Genesis 3, you'll see that very clearly. God promised that one day the son of the woman, Eve, would crush the seed of the serpent. So frustrated work and family never meant the promise would fail. Satan's seed, in this case, the Pharaoh, which many think he had on his crown a serpent drawn on his crown, he sought to pile on accusation toward God's people, which is always the work of the devil, isn't it? He always seeks to pile on accusation, even at work and even with enslavement, whether that enslavement is physical, like it is in this case, or it is spiritual, like it often is in the case with those that have been set free. We're free indeed, not to return to a yoke of enslavement. When we look at this very first point, as we pivot to the second one, I think it's important to restate it. Threats across time do not separate us from the blessings of God. I want to accentuate one aspect of this threat across time. Remember that the brothers within the promised couldn't even pull for one another. I mean, I made a statement a little bit earlier about comforting one another and speaking kindly to one another. I mean, Joseph's brothers, the children of Jacob, did not for the longest time even do that. So there is evidence, I think, within this, this, this first part of this chapter of just a remembering of how God brought them out of family friction. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you long for freedom from family friction. You're in company with faith's family history. Like, this can be overcome. But it's not always overcome quickly, and sometimes we revert back to the blame game again, and we even tell lies like, hey, my dad said, and don't do this now, and, and they don't, we don't trust one another. All that stuff is baked in the cake, but God is greater than our pettiness. He's greater than our former sins. You have to understand today afresh, based on looking back, that one of the things that you are remembering is that God was not only good to forgive you of some sin. He was good to forgive you of all sin. Everything you've ever done and the things that you will do. That does not mean that we sin more, that grace may abound more. By no means, Romans says, it is simply an assured promise because we will never be the ones that ultimately presume on the grace of God. It is simply an assured promise that when the accusation of the devil comes towards you, that you don't have to defend yourself as good enough for grace. You just have to point to the shed blood of Jesus on the cross as evidence that grace is yours and you have a foretaste of glory divine. We must move on. Our second point comes from verses 8 to 14. As we look to the Scripture and see how to apply it, threats at work do not separate us from the blessing of God. Threats at work do not separate us from the blessing of God. I'm satisfied that if Pharaoh had continued to value Joseph's family, he could have been blessed by their blessing. That seems to have been the pattern, right? That's how they overcame the famine. But when a nation's titular head becomes invested in the robbing of the blessing of God's people, then the curse will eventually be visited back on them. And this is the case in verses 8 to 14. This new king saw Israel as a threat rather than as a blessing. And they moved them from shepherds out in Goshen to shear slaves. Now up to half of the known world were slaves then. Then up to half of the known world were slaves. And in the Roman Empire, some 1,500 years later plus, you had about a third of the known empire were slaves. So never, never think that what the Bible regulates, it mandates. 
It was an entire lower class of people then, and there has been lower and middle classes of people. Middle classes is kind of an anomaly, but there has been. It's at least been lower and upper classes of people. And slavery has been prevalent throughout the history of the world. So all slavery is not exactly the same thing, even though slavery ought to be something that Christians despise and want to get rid of. We can say two things for certain, I think, as we think of our own history, which is altogether brief compared to human history. And by that, I mean the history of this particular country. We can say two things for certain. When we think about the Christian scriptures, they surely gave us the meat that we needed to pave the way for the emancipation, a day in which we remember today, the Emancipation Proclamation. And insofar as today's second holiday emphasis chooses to recognize a stated end to slavery in America with the Emancipation Proclamation, we should, as Christians, utter a hearty amen. We should never be the people that somehow back our way into ethnocentrism or racism. You are not on solid biblical ground to do that. You are standing against God, and when you stand against God, you're not going to receive favor from God. You're going to receive correction as a Christian and curse as a non-Christian. This country was founded in 1776 with the Continental Congress, but we did not eliminate the scourge of slavery until 1865 or even begin to. And I say this to our shame if you think of yourself as a citizen of America. However, I'm convinced that the bitterness of a republic over the power of a few is good, and I'm convinced that a Christian worldview makes us know better and grow better and eventually do better. And passages like Exodus 1 helps us see freedom needs to win out over slavery with each of us that are thinking biblically. You see, Pharaoh's store cities were built up on the backs of Israelite slave labor, but God set them free. This had an opposite effect long-term. Agricultural and construction work was frustrated. Israel still multiplied. Though the work was burdened, the blessing was never thwarted. God grew his people. I wonder if you know that work is of God. I feel the need to say this today because we tend to think, at least some do today, that work is in and of itself not a good. But as Christians, you're supposed to value contribution, to value production, creativity, culture. Uh, Think of Genesis, six days you should labor, and then one day you should rest. The Christian worldview expresses the value of an honest day's work. The Sabbath rest has its, as its backdrop six times as many days to work. Six for every one. Our work is frustrated by our sin, but we're still to pursue justice when it's in our power to do so, and we are to work despite hardships. Colossians 3.23 is a great New Testament verse about this. Whatever you do, you should do it as unto the Lord Christ himself. You know, we had a work day here yesterday at the church, and some folks came out yesterday to help with some projects. And you should see the joy that came through, things like trimming and washing and painting. It was joy. People enjoyed one another's company. Fellowship happened. That's not to say that work is is easy or that sweat is always fun, but in God's economy, work is ultimately good. But slavery... That's not good. 
The laborer is worth their wage. It's used in reference to the preacher, but it's also, I think, a good principle for all. The laborer is worth their wage. They should earn a wage commensurate with the work that they do. And the more just a society, the more those things are commensurate, and the less just a society, the less that it is. I don't mean to advocate with this point some kind of one-on-one economic correlation between what happened in Egypt and what we should do now. All I mean is just to speak of Christian precepts and principles. Put an honest day's work, hopefully for an honest day's wage, and if you are someone that is, uh, say, outside the workforce, say maybe an older retiree and and you don't get around so well, would you engage even more fervently in the work of prayer? God promises to honor and bless If you're a younger retiree, would you see whatever work it is that you do now, even if it's at a slightly slower pace, as just as important as when you worked in whatever particular career that you worked in? I think a lot of times younger retirees are what makes this whole thing work anyway. They're still doing things like mentoring and and discipling, and, and there's wisdom there. Those of you in the workforce, which are many of you, don't make your boss force you to work. Work. Put in an honest day's work. It's biblical. Students, study is to make your future work. Children, study now is to make your future work more faithful than it otherwise would be. Study to show yourself approved that you might one day rightly divide the word of truth is not only true for preachers, it's true for all of us. We should study to show ourselves approved. We are a creating, culturing people. Christians have been known to build hospitals and orphanages, to take truths as well as goods on missions to the world, to build schools and civilization. It was one day built in the West based on a Christian worldview. Let's remember to go and do likewise with whatever time that we have. The blessing of work may be threatened, but it is never thwarted. And when you look at verses 8 to 14, you find a tremendous perceived threat, a real threat to God's people. They dealt ruthlessly with them. They were scared or at least loathed them, depending on how you interpret that verse. In verse 12, they made their lives bitter with hard service. More will be said about that in the ensuing chapters, like when they are forced to make bricks without straw. But suffice to say, whether it was in their construction work or their agricultural work, the ruling class of the day sought to make God's people's work miserable. They sought to go even beyond the curse. And so they needed deliverance. Thirdly, threats at home do not separate us from the blessing of God. Threats at home do not separate us from the blessing of God. Look down at verse 15 afresh. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. I don't think that was because of benevolence toward the women. They would have been functionally slave wives at that point. They did not want these men as possible threats to their fiefdom. But look at, I love the lovely word, but, in verse 17. Stare at that. What did the midwives do? But the midwives, or better yet, whom did they fear? Yeah. There's a classic verse in Galatians 1 where the gospel is being explicated by the Apostle Paul. 
And then he just, it's, it's, he's talking about anathematizing those that would change the gospel, and he throws this verse in there. I would not be, I would still be a servant of men and not of God if I tweaked this gospel, if I didn't keep this gospel right. Am I now a servant of God or of men? It's hard not to think about that verse in light of this and this in light of that verse. I mean, these women are exemplary in being servants of God and not of men, aren't they? I mean, there's, there seems to be nothing for them to gain. And, and, and in fact, they're, they're putting themselves in harm's way, to be sure, by not just doing and having the motive to do what it is that the Pharaoh said for them to do. But they feared God over man. Verse 17 says, The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Verse 18, and let the male children live. Now the midwives had already made excuse. They were shrewd themselves. They said, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And now stop after verse 19. I'll read verse 27, but just, just think about this one for a second. Some biblical scholars have said, and I think they're maybe onto something here, that they had put out a word to the Hebrew women to make sure and give birth quickly as possible and that they would seek to get there just after delivery so that this would already be done. That makes sense to me. Pharaoh either bought it enough to let them live or, or, or for whatever reason, as these senior midwives didn't punish them. I don't know exactly how this played out, uh, but they lived because they were blessed with families of their own. Ostensibly, they had been infertile prior. And it says then in, in verse 20, to, to explain that, God dealt with the midwives well, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Again, the theme of multiplication, we see, despite all of this adversity. But many died anyway, I'm sure, because the very next step is stepping it up even more past what the Hebrew midwives would have control over. Verse 21, and because the, I'm sorry, verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, so he's, he's broadening the net, and the sinister plot becomes public as all get out. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. This could have been a worshipful act because the Nile was their sacrifices to the God, their pagan gods, but you let every daughter live. So there could have been a way of justifying this infanticide, throwing them into the river, even though, of course, it's not justifiable. But it's ominous. This Pharaoh representing Satan before God's people mandated that now instead of killing at birth, which would be more akin to abortion in the birth process, they're killing outright, they're, they're commanding, he's commanding outright infanticide. The ruling class wants all the babies killed. I don't make a lot of distinction between life in the womb and life outside the womb. Anyway, I don't think the Bible does that. But for sure, it's a more visceral response when you kill a living, breathing baby. We have some here today. Can you imagine? Their consciences, the consciences clearly can't be shaped by God's word. The consciences are clearly jaded to kill such a, a helpless, little, living, breathing human. Children, live your lives with the firm belief, conviction that's put into action that every life is precious from the moment of conception to the point of natural death. Live your life that way. God blesses and honors that worldview. He is not pleased 
with a culture of death. May God forgive us. May God help us. We think we're so to be coveted and appreciated with our 246 years of wisdom and building upon the enlightenment. We think we're so smart, and yet we can't get something as simple as life right. Shouldn't we lament? Shouldn't we pray? In Eden, the woman was deceived by the serpent. In Exodus, the serpent was deceived by the woman. We see God's gospel promise coming into view. The tide is turning, even in the midst of these ominous circumstances. The promise is coming into view. It may not always look like it. The line may not be straight. It may be kind of jagged with hills and valleys. But God's gospel promise is carried through. The the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It will happen. The deceived woman, Eve, her offspring will not invariably and always be deceived. These women did faithfulness, and God's work was accomplished despite of the pain and the carnage. But I think you have to look in the rearview mirror to see that. It's one of the reasons that a central theme to this sermon is remembrance. It's looking back. As often worship, faithful worship is, looking back so that we can see more clearly how to move forward. I wonder today, what area of your life do you need to learn to fear and cultivate fear of God over fear of man? Would you be moldable today and humble today before God in hearing this text to, to, to allow your heart and your mind to be open to receive as our service leader prayed earlier today? Help me to see the sin that I don't see or that I've long since buried and repent of it. You know why? It's not because I've got you. It's because God's way is the way of blessing. You understand? Like it's, it's not just to play gotcha, like, oh, I have to feel so bad today because of all the things I've been hiding and running from, doing wrong. No, no, no. It's because blessing comes when you're aligned with God. He wants you not only to repent when you receive the gospel, repentance and faith, but He wants you to repent over the course of your Christian life because that makes for blessing. Repent, as Acts 3 says, that refreshing may come over your souls. You may have time of refreshing. Why would we want to cling to unbiblical worldviews, to ways that are antithetical, to Christ. We wouldn't want to do that, would we? So what area of your life must you fear God over man? Where would you put definition and words to that? When we tend toward man solutions and man fearing, I think that our eyes are narrowly focused on the problems at hand. Instead of looking up in prayer and looking up in worship, Perhaps praying the Bible back to God would be a wonderful way for you today if you've become narrowly focused and if you've become sinful and looking for solutions in what you can do and problems that are right before you. I wonder if looking up in prayer and worship today would be exactly the kind of solution that you need for having been bogged down and bitter. Look up, recite his attributes back to him. On the horizon of view, his salvation is sure. The very efforts to the power of the powerful to prevent the blessing of God for his people will actually be leveraged to secure God's blessing for his people. 
Remember what Genesis 50, 20 says, you thought it for bad, God used it for good. Exodus serves as a reminder of how God's redeemed people, how God redeemed his people from slavery and made them into a nation. Abraham's seed received the promised blessing, but beyond Moses, we see it too. Church, you're the chosen seed of Israel's race. You ransom from above. This is why Jesus can say, as is recorded in the Gospel of John, that some ethnic Israelites were not to be considered Abraham's children, while ensuring that Gentiles were. Ethnic Israel brought us salvation by their bloodline, but salvation was never meant to stay there. God's people are far and wide. As Revelation said, there is redeemed from every tribe and tongue. And that should be enough to cause us to sever the root of any kind of racist tendency, shouldn't it? God's people bring blessing. And so we want so much for God's way and God's will to be had in our societies. Oughtn't we act like the blessed, blessed people of God? We're often so bothered and burdened, begrudging and belittling, embattled. We tend to cry instead of crying out to the Lord. The Bible says, and we'll read in a week and two, that God heard the cries of His people. After 400 some years, they are cultivated in their habit of praying. God, we need your deliverance. We need your help. Would you help us? Would you help us? I wonder if this text is meant to remind us how to refocus our efforts as believers on God's ability instead of our own. And I wonder if this text can refocus us in such a way to keep us from crying and teach us to cry out. I am the chief of sinners in this way, so don't think that I'm preaching a sermon that isn't turning right back at me. I am the one, too, that looks to belittle and be bothered and lives beleaguered and begrudged instead of looking to the Lord and saying, with all this embattlement, show me what it looks like to be like the Hebrew midwife. With all this beleaguerment, show me the son of promise. With all these problems, lift my eyes and help me to worship here before we worship out there as a purified and delivered people. I love it, but it's hard for us, isn't it? I mean, we have a 246-year history. This is the 431st year. I mean, it's hard for us. This deliverance is hard for us to get our minds around. But the Bible helps us with it, moves us in our hearts, I think. Shows us to learn to value things that not only don't come natural to the, to the watching world, but don't even come natural to the wayward church world. I mean, how do you read this text and not value children and family? I, don't, I, I, I just can't. Every time I turn this prism of this text over, I don't know how family isn't a blessing. The Psalter said it. Blessed are you who have a quiver full of children, right? I thought about ducking this topic because there's so many ways to get in trouble with this topic, but the text leads us there. So let me just say a few words of exhortation about family. Just a few. Those of you that have families of size, be careful not to be arrogant about the blessing that God has shown you. Wear your blessing well. How about nuclear couples 
that have faced infertility. Don't hear shame from Exodus 1. These Hebrew midwives were honorable before and even if they did not bear children. They were honored. Their names, known. Families in my hearing are couples. Seek biblical counsel of the Word and learn to see family as a blessing. The church family is evidence of that. Watch how the families of size wear their blessing well and taste and see that the Lord is good. Fruitful, swarming, multiplication, that's the meaning of the Hebrew word. They're all synonyms for this thematic word of multiplication. This, this multiplication, this fruitfulness, is reminiscent of Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, of the words to Noah. It's reminiscent. It certainly has in view, rather, Abraham's promise that he would take a very unlikely birth and then give all these births to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Multiplication is part and parcel for blessing. The word's all over Exodus 1. Make it a habit to pray for pregnant women in our church, unborn children, little children. You know, our retention rate for children is so much higher out of the womb than it ever has been in the history of the world. I was reading here, and it said that in the time of the Exodus, one of the, one of the histories said that it's estimated that one out of every three children wouldn't make it to adulthood. I'm sorry, two out of every three. Only one would make it. So about 33%, I don't know, maybe they're wrong. What if it was 40%? It's a very low retention rate of those children that were born that lived into adulthood. Well, we've really shored that up, haven't we? I mean, I don't know exactly what the retention rate is, if you want to use that word, but I'm probably using the wrong word. I'm not a medical professional. Somebody can correct me in the hallway later, and please do. I love the conversation after the service. I really do. It helps me grow. And I love to hear what you have to say, but, but whatever it means for a for a zero for a for a three month old to live, we still have tragic losses. But our retention rate is pretty high. Our issue is we've killed sixty some odd million of our kids before they ever reach birth. We we must put a full stop on that and repent of that. I'm not here to shoot you if you've made that mistake, men and women. I I mean we've all been complicit in this mistake. I'm saying let's repent of it and let's do the right thing going forward. Ours is certainly a blessing, but ours is not a blessing that cannot be revocated. We're a country. Ours, as the people of God, is a blessing that cannot be revocated. But many countries of two, three, four hundred years have fallen. Look at history. Eradicated. You can't even spell the, the, the proper name of their civilization anymore. So if you want somehow the manifold blessing of God to be known here in some way, whether you say again or for the first time or something in between, serve God, fear God, not man. That's, that's it. And I'm not talking about all them. I'm talking about us. Judgment begins in the household of God. 1 Peter 4 says it. It's us. It is easy to look out look in the mirror, but the Bible is presented to us as a mirror. Show me, Lord, is there any unclean way in me? I'm utterly convinced that ours is one to look in the mirror many more times than it is to look out the window. And when we do look out instead of in, let's look up. Let's look up to the Lord who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The epic of Exodus 1 narrows to the birth of a son. And I think our temptation is to jump to Matthew 1 and think of the birth of a son. But we'll save that for another week.
Let's think instead today about how God's blessings are often threatened but never thwarted, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Not based on our family failings, of which are many for me and for you. Not based on frustrated work. Not based on a frustrated home, which we've all faced and will face. Based on God's promise that the curse will be overthrown. I think you need to see this today as a reminder because in the flesh, all you see is the threats that are all around you. The Spirit, as we've said, helps you to step back and look at how God is getting His blessing accomplished and His will will be done. Be done. His kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Christians agree that God blesses His people, but we disagree that God blesses His people sometimes by walking them right through threatening situations that seem like a lack of blessing. But that's what happens in Exodus 1. Nothing separates us from the blessing of God. Non-Christian, your strength will fade by the very effort you take to preserve it. Your strength will fade by the very effort you take to preserve it. Look at Pharaoh. Look at all of his minions. Their strength faded by the very effort they took to preserve it. If you seek to oppose God, you will be frustrated. If you belong to God, you'll never be destroyed. So receive Christ today. Welcome him into your heart and life. Christian, this is a God whose will cannot be defeated, so refocus on his will today. I'll close with a cross-reference to the New Testament that makes this point better than any anecdote otherwise I think could make it. It's Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. We'll be able to, I think, see that on the screen in the interest of time. So hear these words. This is when Peter, James, and John, they were released from prison. They had been... They have been punished for preaching the word, and this is what it says. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For, the, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Talk about the deck being stacked against you. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed throughout the name, through the name of the Holy Servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. As one said, God ordains evil actions by powerful men to bring about His good purposes, even the redemption of His own people. We see this in Pharaoh, and we see it in the crucifixion. Ever threatened, never thwarted. Unstoppable blessings. Let's take a half minute and consider what God would have us to remember and how to worship and what to do as a result of this sermon.
Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for emancipation. We thank you for dads, families. We thank you for the way that you care for us and you console us in your patience with us when, when your blessing is right in front of our faces and we can't even see it. What a wonder and how wonderful is your name. We petition you, Lord, as you taught us to do for those who have needs this week. We think of those who will be meeting with surgeons to consult about important surgeries, and we pray for them. We pray for our brother Mark Parmenter and his wife Diana as he's at the hospital trying to overcome chest pains. Would you heal him? We pray for my grandmother, June Neely, who's been such a faithful grandma to me in the faith who now battles Alzheimer's and was admitted to long-term care this week. We pray for our member, Nancy Reeves. Ask her to receive the medicines she needs at a reasonable cost and to find help for her pain. We pray for Randy Goodwin. Help him to swallow. Heal his body. Heal all of these, we ask humbly, Lord. We pray for a friend of this congregation, Roy May, and his family in this difficult time. We pray for those that are traveling and finding much-needed rest in this time. We hope you'll bring rest to Pastor Kurt's family. We pray for the guests at our church here. We hope they find a church home, maybe here, a place where they can settle. Know you and make you known and be known and know people. I have a taste of heaven to come. We pray representatively for all sorts of people, many whom are not named in this prayer, but we ask your help, and we thank you for the prayers from all of our classes and groups, pods of people that pray. We pray for Bryce Palmer and for his mission, as well as Keck Avenue Church and their pastoral search. Help them. We pray for our law enforcement and local officials, as you taught us to pray. We hope that they would serve this a governed people, a government that's to be of the people and by the people and for the people. Help us to use the relative freedom that we have to free people, but not to enslave them, not for selfish pursuits, but for servitude. We pray that mental illness and deviancy would be handled properly in our society, that mass crimes would curtail, that we would have peace. We pray for servants Eradicate from us those who demand to be served and give us civil servants that want to serve. We pray for that and more, for it's more blessed to give than to receive. We thank you for delivering us from some of our scourges. We ask you to help us to go further. Help us to see abortifacient drugs as the problems that they are, murderous facilities toward the unborn as the evils that they are, and sex trafficking as the wickedness that it is. We don't deserve your blessing, but we end our service today asking you for it, for your patience with us and for your forgiveness. And help us as the assured blessed people of God to reflect that to the people around us and on our streets, in our homes, where we work, in our schools. Help us not to hate our children. Guide us to see multiplication of children as blessing and not a burden. We ask these things in the name of the Son. Amen.